Before we begin this episode, I want to share with you something for Season 7. So, you want to know what goes well with a bun mi? Freshly roasted Vietnamese coffee from Win Coffee Supply. Yes, that's right. Win Coffee Supply is America's first specialty Vietnamese coffee company and proud champion of the resilient Robusta bean. The company imports through direct trade relationships with Vietnamese farmers and roasts in Brooklyn, New York. Founded in 2018 by first-generation entrepreneur activist Sarah Nguyen, the company is on a mission to change the future of coffee through diversity, sustainability, and cultural integrity. Specifically, they diversify the industry through Vietnamese coffee, elevate resilient robusta as the key to our sustainable coffee future, and transform the landscape through economic advancement for both Arabica and robusta farmers globally. Check out their website at www.wincoffeesupply.com or follow them on Instagram at wincoffeesupply. Remember, it is spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. Be sure to use the code BUNMI10, spelled B-A-N-H-M-I, to get your discount when you make a purchase on their website. Red Scarf Revolution is a merchandise line that celebrates and uplifts the Khmer diaspora identity and experiences. It is also part of the effort's long work on preserving the history of the Khmer American culture and honoring the survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide. Founded and organized by Salong Chun, a 1.5 generation Khmer American who was born in the Thailand camps after his family escaped the genocide, he created Red Scarf Revolution as a remembrance of that tragic history but also the celebration and resilience of the Khmer people across the diaspora. You can check out their website and merch line at redscarfrevolution.com or on Instagram at red underscore scarf underscore revolution. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bunby Chronicles podcast. This is your host and creator of this podcast, Randy Kim. As a friendly reminder, this is Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander much, and this is an opportunity to uncover, to unveil, to understand, and celebrate the history of our communities and what we can do to reimagine the future we are envisioning. So I'm excited to share with you my next guest for this episode, Noor Hindi, who is a Palestinian American poet and journalist. Noor is debuting her upcoming critically acclaimed poetry collection book, Dear God, Dear Bones, and Dear Yellow, this month. We talked about the genesis of writing her poems in relation to the Palestinian diaspora and the colonization that Palestine has been under for the past 70 years. Nor shed some light on the eviction crisis in the Detroit area that were happening during COVID. We talked about how all these experiences have informed her writing as both a journalist and poet. Nora also took the time to read one of her new poems from her latest book, so don't miss out on it. And when you get the chance, don't forget to order yourself a copy of her book. Now, one more word from another fellow sponsor of the seventh season. Is your nonprofit tired of using multiple Excel spreadsheets? Do you have a hard time reporting program data to your funders? John Sue Consulting can help. Through the Salesforce Foundation, it provides access to their fundraising platform for free to any C3 nonprofits. Jansu Consulting specializes in customizing Salesforce to your organizational needs. They will provide hands-on training to your staff. 
So don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to help raise more money for your nonprofits so you can keep making a positive impact in your community. So please visit Jansu Consulting at www.chansou.com. Again, it is www.chansou.com to learn more about their services. Hey everyone, so welcome to the Bunny Chronicles podcast and I am here today with a special guest that I have been so happy to have on. Her name is Anor Hindi who goes by she, her, hers pronouns. She is a Palestinian American poet and reporter. She is a 2021 Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellow. Hindi earned her BA and MFA in poetry from the University of Akron. She released her poem, Fuck Your Lecture on Craft, My People Are Dying to Critical Acclaim in December 2020. Nora will soon be releasing her poetry book, Dear God, Dear Bones, Dear Yellow, due to come out on May 31st, which you can order your copy now. You can follow Nora on Twitter at M-Y-N-R-H-I-N-D-I. So, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you on. And... I want to know, um, well, first of all, congratulations on the release of your upcoming poetry book. I think this is such uh, a great opportunity. And also, after uh, reading your poem about a year ago, Fuck Your Lecture on Craft, which we will be talking about, I was so moved by it. And not only for myself, but so many people in my circle were so taken by your poem. And I think a lot of us suffice to say, are very excited about this uh, poetry collection that you're about to unleash to the universe. And what are your feelings right now as you're set to release this uh, book? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Randy, for taking the time. I'm, I'm just so happy that the poem resonated with so many people and that it sort of circulated and created its own life outside of me. And I've always believed that my writing is not really mine anymore. Once I release it into the world, it's in the hands of the people who um, form community around it and and read it and engage with it and engage with me. And so that was really, really exciting. Um, and as for the release of the book, I all of the things, excited, nervous, um, a little bit desperate. I mean, it's been a lot of emotions. Every day is a different sort of uh, reaction, but uh, I'm just excited to, to see uh, what the poems can do for people. And how long have you been working on this uh, particular uh, book? Yeah, so it's it's funny because, I mean, I think, I think forever maybe, you know, like so much of my life and lived experiences and uh, things that have impacted me are definitely in the book. And so it's difficult to really like pinpoint it. And I don't know who said it, but somebody said something like, you're only ever like trying to perfect like the one poem, right? And all of the other poems are in attempts of that. And so um, I think a lot about that, but I guess tangibly to answer your question, I have started working on the collection, I guess when I started the MFA and then my 
second semester of my second year, I hit sort of a stride. And that's when a lot of those poems started to emerge that were in the book. Mm. And I know uh, my understanding is that you're both a journalist and a poet. Now, I mean, two different genres, but how do both of your, how do your lived experiences inform the work that you're doing in both being a journalist and a poet then? Yeah, sure. So uh, I sort of like fell into reporting and then I fell out of reporting. And so I'll kind of give you the backstory, which is I started like freelancing and then working part time. And then uh, during my MFA and during my undergraduate career. And then when I graduated with my MFA in during the pandemic, this was May 2020, uh, just a couple months after COVID had, had really emerged, uh, I launched into a full-time reporting career. And a few months after that, I started an investigative reporting fellowship through Reveal from the Center for Investigative Journalism. And I was looking at housing during the pandemic and specifically evictions that, that were happening during the pandemic, despite the national moratorium. And so uh, just to give you a little bit more information, so I finished that project and I got the Ruth Lily and then I moved to Dearborn, Michigan. So I left Ohio and I am currently working at the University of Michigan in communications and marketing. So I'm, I'm, I've left reporting, it really burnt me out. The project was very heavy for me. Um, just because I spent a lot of time in eviction court and it was a really specific look at the ways that systems um, continue to keep black people and people of color um, just down. And uh, as a displaced person, watching displaced people systemically get displaced was also really hard. Um, and so it's different, right? It's different. I think if it would have been a white reporter in that courtroom or uh, someone who wasn't displaced, right? Um, so I, the reporting, I think, comes out in a lot of poems that I'd written that year uh, in the book. They're the breaking news poems. But also these topics were sort of emerging um, during my lifetime because I'm a Muslim American who grew up in the US post 9-11 America, right? And to a father who was constantly watching the news um, and keeping up with Palestine. And so Palestinians were always on our TV screen being depicted and you'd see the differences in their depiction, the differences between Western media and then the media that was um, emerging from like Al Jazeera and um, networks that were a little bit closer to Palestine, right? And so um, that sort of dichotomy is something I was really, really interesting interested in and then became acutely aware of as a reporter um, as we think about perspective and covering people and how we best represent their stories mm. in a way that's humane and uh, with the dignity that it deserves, right? Mm, absolutely. And also when we talk about the evictions, I'm actually very curious to know what, what some of the personal stories and what were some of the false um, what were some of the false narratives that have been spewed out? Because I know during the time there was the eviction moratorium, but obviously there are 
layers upon layers and who gets evicted and who actually is protected from this policy. Yeah, it was uh, it was really actually quite multifaceted. Um, so the headlines read that a national eviction moratorium was in effect. And so a lot of people, including myself, read that as point blank, you cannot evict anybody, right? But there were all these systems that people who were who are most vulnerable have to go through, right? You have to first have access to the news. Then you have to know how to apply to get the rental assistance that you need to prevent your eviction. Then you have to figure out how to like um how to negotiate with your landlord to some degree and make sure that they're not taking you to court. Because at least in Akron, the court stayed open. People continued to file their evictions. And the way that the Akron Municipal Court did it is that you had to have your rental assistance pending in order for your eviction to get halted, right? And so a lot of people would show up to court. And these were people on you know, the fringes, like people living off of social security income, people, you know, single moms. I talked to a man and his wife who both had lung cancer. And so people that are really, really struggling. And um, as we know, just one or less paychecks away from losing their home. And they would show up to court and perhaps they knew that there was an eviction moratorium but then the court, the judge would say, well, did you, you know, sign this letter saying that you can't pay rent because of COVID? And do you have rental relief? And they would respond, no, because they didn't know, right? Mm -hmm. And it, so the eviction would get granted. And mm. a week or two later, they'd be kicked off on the street. And so it's all of these loopholes. And I don't think that they were properly addressed in the headlines that were in the media at that time. Um, and then you had these courts sort of quietly resuming evictions um, without the public's knowledge. I mean, a court, I would encourage anyone, like you can watch court proceedings in your city. Take a couple days, observe. Um, it's really, really fascinating, all of the different like mm. loopholes. I think about the second language. Um, the, the non-English speaking uh, folks. Mm -hmm. I think about people who lack the literacy ability. Yeah. And also, I think what people forget, and this is something that I've learned a lot in the immigration movements and with uh, working with immigration lawyers in my own past, is that yeah. oftentimes attorneys talk and policies are written in such a way that regular folks um, oh, no. And people don't have who lack uh, a lot of the educational access aren't able to interpret or unable to process this language. And it was and it's and let's be very frank, it's very much done intentionally. It's mm -hmm. meant to create these loopholes. It's saying yes, we can say that there's no evictions, but there's a huge but, and there's like mm -hmm. ten different lines, and it's written in five point fonts you know and that's what it looks Completely. like yeah i i am in total agreement with you i mean it's it also weighs down on you know for example like 
you will read a lot of stories now about how rental relief assistance, um, some cities still have some of that funding because they did not have the infrastructure in place to give out that funding. And that is either because there aren't enough community organizations and volunteers and nonprofit agencies that can, you know, that have the people or you have community members who are in desperate need of that money that don't know that it exists. And so wires get crossed and then people who are most at need end up getting forgotten. Um, and yes, I think it is intentional. I mean, you saw people just really get stuck in this process of being put on hold of being the 84th caller on that day to try to call and get this funding or not having access to a printer to sign this letter, um, not having access to a computer, not having access to the literacy needed to know how to Google this information, right? Or internet. Uh, or internet, right. Like you talk about information being at your fingertips, but often you have to know exactly what to search for to get to what you need. and this can be a barrier. It's funny though, when it comes to, at least what I observed in Akron is that when it came to um, a lot of people who English was their second language and English language learners, they often didn't go to court. Um, those were the folks, you know, there's the statistics of the number of people who get evicted and then via the court. And then there's people who receive that eviction notice on their door and they just quietly leave before the court date. Mm. And most often, um, those were the people who were not showing up to court, right? Like, and it was those English language learners, it was those first generation, I mean, uh, immigrants who had, had just come to this country or didn't know how to navigate. Mm. Wow, it's just, it, it's rather just so speechless every time I think about the audacity of the way our U.S. government on the federal, local, and state level treat this. Mm -hmm. But it's also not surprising because this is uh, a government, I know I'm probably going to get some flack for it, as I always do, that we are living in stolen lands, right? And so mm -hmm. this has always been the blueprint, you know, taking and evicting people out. And not just in America, but obviously around the globe that the U.S. has this is a history of colonialism, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, and for the uh, poem, Fuck Your Lecture on Craft, My People Are Dying. Now, this is a poem that I was just profoundly moved by. And, and I'm very glad to have your permission to read this because I think it's such uh, a poem that resonates with so many people, not just for the people in Palestine, but people who are are refugees or descendants of refugees and what this experience is like. And you know, I have a good friend of mine, Anita Yuali, who is uh, both Kamai and also Muslim. She said a line that always struck to me. And when she was ready to go back to Cambodia years ago, she wrote, I will never, I will return to a country I have never known that burns a hole inside my heart the size of home. And I think reading that poem, it, that's what it starts to remind me of. And, and I will definitely, uh, take a read at it and and I would love to get your own reaction and learn about the genesis of creating this uh, beautiful poem so colonizers write about flowers 
I tell you about children throwing rocks at Israeli tanks seconds before becoming daisies. I want to be like those poets who care about the moon. Palestinians don't see the moon from jail cells and prisons. It's so beautiful, the moon. They're so beautiful, the flowers. I pick flowers for my dead father when I'm sad. He watches Al Jazeera all day. I wish Jessica would stop texting me Happy Ramadan. I know I'm American because when I walk into a room, something dies. Metaphors about death are for poets who think ghosts care about sound. When I die, I promise to haunt you forever. One day, I'll write about the flowers like we own them. Wow. Thank you so much, Randy, for that beautiful reading. Wow, thank you for allowing me to do this in front of you. And I I love that last line, I'll write about the flowers like we own them. So this idea of reclaiming, this idea of like, we've lost our dignity You've for so long, but we aren't, you may think that we have lost our dignity, but you still haven't. Mm-hmm. And the flowers, the metaphor, and I think the line that really stood out for me is, I know I'm American because when I walk into a room, something dies. And as a descendant of refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia, that is sometimes the anger that I feel a lot of times when I think about my own dad's PTSD, my mom's PTSD, and my relatives who have been through the uh, front lines of the Vietnam War and in Cambodia, which obviously is connected to the U.S. uh, colonialism. And in Palestine, we are obviously seeing this get played out for the past 70 years. And I'd like to know what was the process in writing this particular piece and what is your relationship with this poem now after the past two years? That's a great question. And and thank you so much for, again, reading it and engaging with the poem. It, it really means a lot that it was able to reach so many people who needed it and needed those words. And I hope that, you know, especially that line, that last line, that it is an act of reclamation to be able to read that. Um, it's really funny because this is the most uncomplicated poem I've ever written. I was doing a poem a day with um, my former thesis advisor and professor, Dr. Mary Bittinger, and it was summertime. And I remember sitting down and just thinking like, I just need to get a poem out today. And it came out so quickly, like some poems just, some poems begrudgingly come out of you and they, they take something with them, right? And there is this massive labor of editing and emotional labor and some poems just fly out of you. And this poem really flew out of me. And Mm. um, I had no awareness really that it was a poem that would reach people. I didn't think it was a good poem to be quite honest with you. and I think it was because it, it came out so easy and uh, that I was I was shocked by the response of it. Uh, and I remember 
I showed it to a few people and they loved it. And then I started looking at it differently um, based on their response. And I was actually so not confident in it that when I think it was 2020 when I'd been a finalist for the Ruth Lily that poetry had asked if we could send poems to them. And I'd sneaked it into the last poem of the packet because that's where I always put my worst poems. Um, and and they published it and, and that was the poem that they loved. And so uh, it, it was very strange seeing the response, but I think it's a matter, um, you know, part of it, I have to admit, I think that people love short poems online. I think there's that. I also think that the timing of it was at a point in our country where there was so much rage. This was following the murder of George Floyd. There was the pandemic that was happening. I think it was following the murder of George Floyd. Hold on. December. December 2020. So yeah, it was definitely following. It was, be- it was was it before? It was after George Floyd because it was June of 2020. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, it was following the murder of George Floyd. It was following the pandemic it was following continued the election election. it was following continued protests in palestine and um use of force and murders by israel um around the west bank and so there was there was so much going on and it was at a point i think when the country was at a breaking point at a breaking point and i think that's why it resonated so much and yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think it's there's so much intensity around that year. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. we're in, gosh, we're in like year th- three of the pandemic, I believe. I've lost count, but um, yeah, it's not over. Yeah, and actually, you know, it's funny. I have a very random comment to make because you mentioned Mary Binninger. She was actually my professor at UIC nearly twenty years ago. I don't want to age myself wow, it's so random amazing. and the reason yeah. why i remember her because she was like really one of my favorite uh professors when i was in my undergrad years so definitely yeah, the, the book would not have been uh would not have been written without her she is wow. a wonderful instructor and she is. an amazing amazing uh she was amazing to have as sort of uh, somebody who really cheerleaded and advocates for her students. Oh, I believe it because she is definitely yeah. a cheerleader. And and uh, Mary, if you're listening, I hope you still remember me. I know it's been like ages and ages, but um, hey. Uh, so I'm really <laughs> glad. I'm really glad for that because I think it's just amazing that she really championed your work and really sought to lift it. And and I think sometimes I'm. It's it's never uncommon to hear from artists who do not like what people perceive to be their best work. And I think that, you know, people have very different relationships with it and how it impacts them. And what you put out to your universe, you can't control that. Um, You can only control what it gives back to you and how you respond to it. So I'm really glad that um, that she actually saw potential in this and it would lead you to come up with uh, your debut book. And so when you think about Palestine now, what are your personal takeaways when you think about Palestine through your family's lived experiences and what is Palestine to you now? That's a fascinating question. I don't think I've 
I've thought of, I mean, yeah, I don't think I've thought about that um, in that way. I don't have a relationship to Palestine outside of my family because I have never been there. Um, my dad could not return for years and years and years. And by the time um, we grew old enough to be able to go back with him, uh, there was school and jobs. And so I, I haven't been there. Uh, I'm hoping to go maybe next year for the first time. I'd love to take a trip with him uh, if they'll if they'll let us in, um, which is something I think about too. And so I don't know what my relationship to it is other than one of deep hope and also grief. And also I'm definitely expecting that that initial trip will be very emotional to be able to step on the land of my ancestors and maybe see my uh, grandfather's home before 1948, before Nekbe, and, and to just be on that land and that soil mm -hmm. um, is, is, I think, going to be beautiful. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I learn about places like Palestine or Cambodia or, you know, Burma, is that we always think about them as tragic stories. And I think it's also very harmful because we dehumanize, we take the human elements of the people living there, right? And one of the, there was one, and I just thought of it and I just can't remember off the top of my head what the Instagram handle is, but there is actually an Instagram handle which shows a lot of the beautiful things about Palestine and its history and its mm -hmm. current state. And to me, it, it's, again, reclaiming this narrative that was forcibly taken away. And all you mm -hmm. see in the media is like smokes and mm -hmm. forced evictions, which obviously is very, um, very um, parallel to the work that you're doing, that you were doing as a journalist. And so I think oftentimes uh, we see the power when you start to see the power of the Palestinian people telling their stories, mm -hmm. not just of tragedy, but of triumph of, of yeah. joy and the thriving and I think that is something that is very important to this narrative that it often goes missing now um with that Completely. said yeah with that said how would you say your own I think this might be a touchy subject too but um your own relationship with um the Jewish communities like uh, uh, especially when the conversation gets brought up about Palestine. I think it's always been a very difficult topic to navigate through, but I also do see where there are Jewish communities that are very supportive of Palestine, but we just don't see the um, the visibility of it through the media. But I'm just very curious from your own lens, from what you've, from what you've experienced in these dialogues. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm wary to conflate Jewish as anti-Palestine. Um, I, I do not believe that all Jewish people support the state of Israel. And so there is a very clear difference between um, 
Judaism and Zionism, right? No matter right. how much they try to conflate it, right? Like it doesn't help anybody to conflate those. Um, even though when we say anything pro-Palestine, somebody says you're being uh, anti-Jewish, you're, you know, and so it's not fair. Um, I would say that it's not just, you know, Zionism extends beyond Jewishness. It is an issue of colonization. It is an issue of uh, superpowers. It is an issue of claiming land and a people and a tradition for your own. And um, it's a history of violence. And so until we begin to untangle that, I don't think we can have a real conversation um, and so I think that what I've started to see a lot of hope in is this sense of collective community, um, where displaced communities are starting to come together. I'm seeing the Black Lives Matter movement really pair up with the Palestinian liberation movement, really pair up with the, uh, movement for trans rights, um, and so I think there's a lot of power in that. And that's what gives me hope personally. Yeah, actually, um, I've seen the Black Lives Matter movement really coalesce around this too. And I think of Dr. Angela Davis, who has been very vocal about um, what's going on in Palestine for a number of years. So it's very encouraging to see that it does exist. Sonia Renee Taylor being one of them, she I know mm -hmm. gave a great Instagram video on on talking about what Zionism Zionism looks like, you know, and what does Palestinian occupation with my uh, air fingers, yeah. yeah, look like. And so I really thank you for you know shedding a lot of light into this. And um, yeah, of course. And I want to shout out really quickly. Um, Angela Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle is an is. excellent book out with Haymarket. Um, and also, if I can shout out another book that I think is really important, um, is The Freedom of Law by uh, Richard Rothstein. The Color of Law, sorry. Not the, yeah. The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which really breaks down the ways that our country's um, laws and its foundations were meant to segregate and keep black people away from certain areas um and so those are two books i would just recommend mm. off topic yeah no actually the dr angela davis book i i've read it and it is definitely a recommended piece and certainly i, I hope that people get a chance to you know check them out now we are seeing what's going on in ukraine and with russia and i think it certainly echoes a lot of triggers especially if you are a refugee or as a person who have family members who have had to deal with the uh, the forced migration and the violence that came with it. Now, I wonder what your reaction is when you think about what's going on in Ukraine and how this connects to what you've shared about Palestine. And really, if we can expand into it, we look at what's going on with Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Burma, who are also going through this, but yet um, the, the respect and dignity for the people who are suffering through it is certainly not equitable to uh, to the folks in Ukraine. But it's also at the same time, as I say this, as we 
vocalize this is that you know we support ukraine refugees we support um the humanity that they deserve too but there's also this this um frustrating feeling that well what about the rest of the refugees who are trying to escape haiti another example too mm -hmm. so we are seeing this disconnect and the irony of it all too especially with russia and ukraine and i think dr hanani k trask uh bless her soul i know she passed uh, several months ago when she confronted a white caller about her being anti-american when she's a native hawaiian and how she pointed out that the, we would always consider the soviet union as the bad bad people but yet in the u.s we've taken this much land on top of it so i see the irony happening obviously with palestine but i'd like to know what your reaction is to what's going on currently yeah there are there are certainly a lot of layers um especially with what you just said i mean i'm i'm thinking about america's swift response to ukraine and this uh defense of the ukrainian people and um violence in both action and words against Putin, right, which is deserved, clearly. Um, but also what's been interesting is, is this idea that, well, you can't just take another country. And then to turn around and not look at your own history, right? <laughs> like, there's irony in that. And it's a terrible irony, and I would hope that any displaced community worldwide receives the respect and dignity and healing that it deserves, right? Um, something that has been beautiful and also disappointing to see is the media's attention to Ukraine, right? Um, and I'm saying media knowing that like, this is a very like right-wing term, um, but I, I've been listening to, uh, listen to the, the Daily from the New York Times a lot. And it, it sent out a couple reporters to Ukraine to document um, their migration and, and the bombings that have been happening and the violence that's happening and this, this loss of homeland that they're experiencing. And then the way that the podcast is capturing it is so sharp and, and is so filled with, with the respect and the dignity that the Ukrainian people deserve in this moment. But it's also like one listens to it and thinks, well, damn, like you guys know how to humanize people. You know how to tell a good story you know how to pull at a listener's heart and get them to care about a subject. You know how to interview in a way that is trauma-informed and not just pulling information from somebody as a source, but remembering that they are at a place of trauma. You know how to do all this. And so where is this attention and this skill? 
when it's not white people that are being displaced. And so that's something I've been thinking a lot about when I'm, I'm reading these headlines and, you know, you can't say free Palestine. You can't, even the way that Ukrainians are being portrayed in their fighting and their uh, resistance to Russian violence is fascinating. They're being depicted as as uh, as heroes, and they are. But when Palestinians do it, they're terrorists, right? And so the the language and the contrast of the language has been appalling, I think. And um, yeah, it is time to hold them accountable for this. Absolutely. Now that we know that they can do it, that needs to be the standard moving forward. Yeah, and we see that, as you pointed out, they do know how to do it. And also, when you got corporate media wings investing in these outlets, <laughs> telling this is the kind of narrative that you need to be telling. And when we look at Stop Asian Hate, too, like when we see um, Asian women getting terrorized and the way the news cycle just ignores them and kind of dehumanizes them, it's something to really think about, or obviously what has happened in the past 20 years to um, to the Arabic Sikh um, and to the South Asian communities who've been under surveillance. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, we lose the, the human narratives of it because these are people who have families, who own their own businesses, who are part of the fabric of our society, and yet we don't include their dignity in them. It's something that I, when I was interviewing Christian Haas' parents, one of the first things I told his parents was that we don't, we have not heard a story about who Christian was as a son, as a kid. And Mm -hmm. that was missing because all we see is the final moments of his death, like we see with George Floyd. We don't hear um, the narratives about who they are, except how they died in real time or murdered and the crime and the, the petty crime that they, you know, exactly. And just kind of, kind of going into this Olympics of, of finding out what they did wrong and, but not looking at the whole picture, not looking at the roots of what got them into a difficult situation. So, I mean, I can go into this rabbit hole, which I don't want to put (laughs) both of us through, but I, I think it's, it also goes to show you like, you know, these are, the the context that we're working with and um and i think what you're doing so far as both a journalist and a poet is that you are bringing this form of news your form of lived experiences to that platform which i think is incredibly powerful and art is a threat to to the oppressors um and i'm glad that you are making good on that threat and i know that you have a poem that you're looking to uh, share with us uh, out of your upcoming book. So I'd like to see if you're able to, uh, uh, to be able to bring, to uh, be able to read that for us. Yeah, sure. Um, I will actually read this poem um, in response to a New York Times article written about Ruzian and Najjar, who was a Palestinian medic killed by Israeli soldiers. A day, a life, 
when a medic was killed in Gaza, was it an accident? And that title is taken specifically from the New York Times headline. And what about the flowers on her scarf? Her white medical coat, now red. Nails painted pink as a tongue, a sunset, a pomegranate. How tear gas forms clouds above the dead. How a land force-fed bullets and blood ruptures its stomach and swings it at a flag. Tell me why my people's deaths become a hopeless, endless conflict in the lives it wastes. What murders become accident, unintentional in the eyes of those who name my father's tears, an unending and insolvable cycle of violence. Tell me about the 30 witness interviews and thousand photos and videos it took for you to name our resistance as drama. Tell me, in a country that allows four hours of electricity a day, how a people live in darkness, hold the keys to homes blown up by soldiers while a mother clutches her daughter now dead takes off Ruzian's white gloves, grieves the sun in its impenetrable light, remembers the toy stethoscopes Ruzian played with as a child, then stares into the eyes of an Israeli soldier and laughs. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a powerful, powerful poem. Vivid and just so confronting in its and it's very, and it's very, I don't even know what to say, but I, I just want to say that it's unapologetically confronting in the, in, in the realities that we are seeing. And this is the lived experience of what's going on in Palestine. And I'm glad and thankful that you lifted this uh, story and really thankful. And, and I'd like to get a sense of what was going through your mind as you were writing this poem and, and and what was that whole experience like for you? Was it very similar to what you were writing when uh, you did the uh, craft My People Are Dying? Yeah, sure. Thank you for that question and for listening. Um, so I, uh, there was a really long investigative project New York Times had engaged in for following the death of, of, of Ruzian and it had, it had dedicated like more than a handful of reporters on this, like sent them out there with translators and documented and looked at, you know, videos from the army and, and, and did all these interviews and the amount of work that this project, um, the amount of work that the New York Times dedicated to this project was astounding. And then in the end, you know, they had all these resources, they had all these people, they had all this training and what was missing was the empathy of what we're talking about with the way 
eight, for example, that the Ukrainian people are being talked about. And I remember that the writers came out of this project with this sort of like non-conclusion conclusion of like, well, you know, these lives are lost in this never ending war. And this is, this is the price that we pay for war. And it seemed to like inch toward maybe wanting to condemn Israel for this murder, but then was so apologetic toward Israel. Like, oh, this is just what happens, right? Like this, these accidents, they just occur. And it's the same way that we talk about a black person who's murdered by the police. It's, it's the same pattern that's sort of repeated and the same sort of passive language. This person died in the hands of police. This person passed away. A, a bullet struck this person and killed them, never saying who shot that bullet. Um, and so I wrote, I wrote this, yeah, I wrote this poem in response to that. And, and there is language in there from the article and um, thank you for letting me read it. Cause I, I hadn't actually read this poem out loud in a while, so. Oh, wow, well, it's an honor. And I'm glad that you chose to do that poem. And also a little shout out to your lovely uh, feline too. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, I, was, I love, uh, I love, I love, I love, I love looking at cats. To be honest with I you, I was slow to respond to you because she was like, I accidentally locked her out of the room. <gasps> oh no! I know it was really sad. Here she is, though. Oh, adorable. Yeah. Aww, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've held your uh, no, it's your okay. Hostage. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> and and also as we start to wrap up soon, so when you think about giving your own level of self-care and giving yourself grace, what does that look like to you, especially in the work that you're doing, um, what, in the work that you've done before, but also in the work that you're doing now, which I know is still uh, has its own challenges. Yeah, I, um, I, think, I think caring for oneself is so important. I think cultivating joy in our lives is so important. And I will just say like the, uh, thing that I've been doing a lot is uh, binging New Girl on Netflix and I do a lot of puzzles. I really enjoy um, working on puzzles and just spending time and, and spending time with my community and, and nourishing really good friendships um, is, is the way that I'm staying afloat. And are you looking forward to doing the book tour? What's your process as you're about to embark in promoting this book. I know that there's got to be a lot of butterflies as you're going to different communities and, you know, I'm pretty sure going through different levels of interviews. So I'm just kind of curious to know what's going through your mind as you're about to embark on this journey. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm going to be reading this month april at the i know this episode doesn't come out till may um the chicago public library virtually um and there's a couple of there's will be a launch reading with haymarket may 31st for the book um a lot of these events 
should be in future events should be accessible and open to anyone from the public because I think that we're going to stay virtual because I don't see uh, this pandemic ending despite some people's um, belief that it has and so um, I'm excited to keep connecting uh, to different parts of the U.S. and, and abroad um, through my computer screen. <laughs> yeah, at least you get to do it safely, too. I know that the pandemic, there are people that are clearly pretending it's already over. And I'm just like, well, you heard about this uh, new variant that just keeps popping up. So it's a lot of sighing <laughs> that I do from day to day. And there are times when I just don't want to be around humans on most <laughs> days. But, but you know, I'm also very encouraged to, especially in this virtual world, to learn of artists, including yourself. And that's how I am, you know, blessed to, you know, live in this digital age to, to read up on people who are documenting documenting their history in real time and and doing so in a way that is reclaiming the narrative but it also takes that narrative away from the hands of white researchers who have been so typical to writing these stories in a way that's false and lacks a lot of things um suffice to say um but I also want to say thank you so much for you know taking the time to be here and really it's such an honor and I cannot wait to see people's reaction towards your new book. I cannot wait to grab to get my copy and I hope that you get to order it uh, from your local bookstore or from your local library where it's accessible because um, it's very important to support uh, BIPOC and queer trans uh, led bookstores because it's it's a need so yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, please, please um, request the book through your local library. It's, um, it is super beneficial to the press. It is super beneficial to the poet. I don't think that you have to purchase the book. Um, like, please get my book out of the library. <laughs> I would be honored. It's also good for the environment, too. So It is also very good for the environment. Um, and so, yeah, please get it from a library. Please support your local libraries. Um, I work at a library, so I feel like I'm always cheering. Oh, nice. For, yeah. Um, but anyway, thank you, Randy, for your questions. And um, they were so thoughtful and, and your comments. And um, I really appreciated uh, oh. the time spent with you. Oh, thank you so much and best of luck to you the rest of the way. And we'll be keeping an eye on your journey too. Thanks a ton. Well, that is a wrap for today. And I want to say thank you so much for listening to my guest and for this episode. So be sure to check out previous episodes that you might've missed. And to stay tuned, check out my Instagram at on me which is b-a-n-h-m-i underscore chronicles or you can just type into my facebook page at the bun me chronicles or on twitter at m-i underscore chronicles and also before before you leave uh make sure that you send a five-star review on apple podcasts and be sure to uh, check out for any new episodes thank you so much and again have a wonderful day